Good evening, everybody. Welcome to class four uh, of the Return of the King class. Um, we are <clears throat> we are going to uh, celebrate Samwise Gamgee tonight. Tonight is the is the day when I uh, let <laughs> let out all the stops and uh, just pretty much talk about Sam for the entire time. Um, so that's what we're going to do. Um, we may get around to talking about Frodo a little bit by the end of the class, uh, but, <laughs> but I'm not going to spend much time on Frodo. We're going to spend most of our time on Sam, um, because in you know my mind certainly this is uh, this is <clears throat> this whole section, these first three chapters, um, the trip through Mordor to Mount Doom uh, is really um, is really the Sam Gamgee section uh, of the book, I think. Um, I agree. <laughs> yes. Uh, Erica and Luke have just both asked the same thing. Is this Sam's hour? Yes, this is definitely Sam's hour. Um, yeah. Okay. But let's, uh, let's move on. I apologize for starting a little bit late tonight, uh, because, uh, I had an unexpected reboot right before class here. So anyway, I finally got things together here, I hope. Um, so let's jump into it. We, uh, join Sam on the threshold of Mordor here. So let us look first at his temptation by the ring. His thought turned to the ring, but there was no comfort there, only dread and danger. Remember, by the way, the context of this passage. He has just come around the corner and seen the Tower of Kirith Ungol and all of its strength, and he's just been reflecting about how uh, as bad as it would seem to, if his job were merely to try to sneak by the walls and gate of the Tower of Kirith Ungol without being spotted, his job is much worse than that. He's got to somehow find a way to force entry by himself into that tower in order to rescue Frodo. So that's the situation that he finds himself in as he's sitting there looking, and it's in that context that he has these thoughts about the ring, um, which I think uh, which I think are significant. His thought turned to the ring, but there was no comfort there, only dread and danger. No sooner had he come in sight of Mount Doom, burning far away, than he was aware of a change in his burden. As it drew near the great furnaces, where, in the deeps of time, it had been shaped and forged, the ring's power grew, and it became more fell, untamable, save by some mighty will. As Sam stood there, even though the ring was not on him, but hanging by its chain about his neck, he felt himself enlarged, as if he were robed in a huge distorted shadow of himself, a vast and ominous threat halted upon the walls of Mordor. He felt that he had from now on only two choices, to forbear the ring, though it would torment him, or to claim it, and challenge the power that sat in its dark hold beyond the Valley of Shadows. Already the ring tempted him, gnawing at his will and reason. Wild fantasies arose in his mind. He saw Samwise the Strong, hero of the age, striding with a flaming sword across the darkened land, and armies flocking to his call as he marched to the overthrow of Barad-dûr. And then all the clouds rolled away, and the white sun shone, and at his command the Vale of Gorgoroth became a garden of flowers and trees, and brought forth fruit. He had only to put on the ring and claim it for his own, and all this could be. In that hour of trial it was the love of his master that helped most to hold him firm. But also, deep down in him, lived still unconquered his plain hobbit sense. He knew in the core of his heart that he was not large enough to bear such a burden even if such visions were not a mere cheat to betray him. One small garden of a free gardener was all his need and due, not a garden swollen to a realm, his own hands to use, not the hands of others to command. 
Okay. Okay. Um, what do you think? What do you think? Now, Luke asks the question, why couldn't he use the ring here, but he could like 20 feet ago? It's true. I mean, Sam really uh, cuts it fine. I mean, he just put on the ring for the heck of it, it seemed, um, uh, you know, a little while back. Um, that is not not counting the one at the end of the two towers where he was when he was listening to Shagrat and, and, and Gorbag, but just here at the re- beginning of the Return of the King, he's like, ah, I'll put the ring on, and he does right. Um, but now he's like, no, 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 now I can't possibly do it. I think the important thing here, again, a lot of people when they're thinking about the ring and Sauron and the ring rates and stuff, tend to think of this in um, in terms which I don't think the text fully supports. That is that. You know that the the ring sends out some kind of, you know, sort of spiritual signal or whatever it is that they can kind of detect it. Um, you know, as if like the ring wraiths have this like you know ring detector, uh, 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 so you know sort of radar going on or whatever. You know, this like swiveling ring receiver or something, or that Sauron can sense it. Sauron clearly can sense it. He doesn't sense it. It gets quite close to him, and he doesn't sense it until Frodo puts it on and claims it for his own, invoking its power. Then. Sauron senses it and is suddenly aware of him. Um, but excuse me, I accidentally started talking about Frodo there. Um, however, uh, th- again, that doesn't seem to be the issue. Whether or not, you know, to what extent they can sense it, and again, the captain of the ring raids missed it like yards away um, back in back in uh, Morgul Vale in the Two Towers. Um, what Sam says, what the text emphasizes here, is that the difference between, as Luke says, now and 20 feet up the path, uh, as far as putting the ring on, um, the narrative emphasizes that the change is not in the ring or in its its proximity to, uh, to Sauron, as if they've crossed some arbitrary map line and therefore now are officially within Mordor and therefore he's going to sense it, but rather it's a change in the ring itself. Um, he seemed to feel a ch- he was aware of a change in his burden, um, that the power of the ring has increased as it now begins to approach Sauron more closely. Um, so there's something that has changed about the ring and something that's changed about Sam's, um, Sam's relationship with the ring, um, that he can no longer just put it on casually anymore. That doesn't seem to be an option for him. Um, and again, he seems conscious of the fact you know, again, he there, there. He ha, he felt he had from now on, um, two, you know, only two choices: to forbear the ring or to claim it. Um, there's no. I just want to make myself invisible, right? I'm not claiming to become the Lord of the Ring. I, I'm just kind of, you know, using it as an invisibility ring. That's how Bilbo used it for many years. That's how Frodo used to use it. Um, that is not an option anymore for Sam. So again, the emphasis is on the change in the ring, and therefore in him not in its proximity to Sauron. Um, you know, Carissa is mentioning uh, the the fact that the word wise is in Sam's name, and his name, Samwise, begins to sound... Um, begins to sound significant, you know, as Sam himself grows in wisdom. Of course, originally, the name is a joke... Um, Samwise is an Anglo-Saxon word, which means literally half-wit. Um, Sam, uh, when applied as a prefix like that, uh, is, is not flattering. Um, so it's a joke, and a joke initially at Sam's expense. Um, but uh, 
Uh, it is something that I actually think uh, is fascinating to sort of see that grow and develop, is that what starts off as uh, as merely sort of a joke, you know, he is a, he is just, he's a yokel, right? You know, he's a, he's a sort of a local halfwit, um, as he's called. But, as, you know, he, as he grows and develops over the course of the story, um, the fact that uh, Samwise, the halfwit, uh, would become actually wise, you know, that, that uh, you know, that his name would become um, not just its literal Anglo-Saxon meaning, but its more plain English meaning, Sam the Wise, um, I think is a really interesting play. And part, you know, and, and I would connect it to one of the overall themes that we see in The Lord of the Rings. Uh, you know, small hands do them because they must. You know, the, there's, there is one sense in which... Um, you know the, the 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 last becoming first and the first becoming last is a is a pretty major thing in the Lord of the Rings, and so again I think there's a way in which that joke becomes literalized and even becomes sort of heroically true uh, in ways which don't seem at all connected with the original joke uh, on his name. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Chris Lawson asks a good question. Does anyone else in the entire book fight off the ring as Sam as well as Sam does here? Um, Faramir does a good job. We have to give props to Faramir on this one. Faramir resists the lure of the ring um, at least as well as anybody else does. Um, Faramir, Tom Bombadil. Um, but for neither one of them do we get an internal monologue. Um, with Faramir, we get something approaching it. We get like a cousin of the of the. Yeah, Diego was thinking of Faramir too. Um, uh, with Faramir, we get a speech which is like a first cousin to a ring-induced monologue. Right? We don't see him fantasize. We don't, we don't see him in um, you know sort of uh, 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 ring-influenced fantasies in the way that we get with Boromir and with Galadriel and with Gollum and with so many different characters. Um, and as we're getting with Sam here, um, we don't really see what kind of fantasies or dreams does would the ring try to inspire in Faramir's heart? How does it get there? What we do here is his description, Faramir's description, in that paragraph in the Two Towers when he's explaining what he would have, right? Um, if he could have his wish, what would he have? And he would have Minas Tirith restored to glory. He would have... Uh, you know her loved uh, and uh, and revered for her beauty and her ancientry. Remember that speech. Um, in that speech, he's not talking about the ring, um, but in a sense, he is illustrating or ex- or or sort of demonstrating why he is not um, subject to the temptation of the ring. Why he can resist it so comparatively effortlessly, especially when compared with his brother, um, who failed in the end to resist it. So um, so we do get something like that with Faramir, where we, we don't see the corrupt direction that the ring is trying to take him, um, but we do see what his values are and what helps him stand against that. Um, Tom, you're absolutely right. Uh, Faramir has one big advantage in that he is not, in fact, in possession of the ring. Now, we know that others have ring-induced monologues when they don't have the ring. Again, Goadriel has one. Uh, Gollum has one. Um, but, but yeah, it's one thing to say from a distance, 
no, no, I wouldn't take it. And it's another thing to have it around your neck as it's increasing in power like this standing in Mordor, and then to resist it. Um, yes. And, Rebecca, by the way, I agree with you. Tom Bombadil doesn't resist the ring. Uh, he isn't tempted at all. There doesn't seem to be anything to resist uh, for Tom Bombadil. I agree with that. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Um, Rebecca's questioning whether Goadriel's thing counts as a ring-induced monologue. Uh, I agree, Rebecca. I don't... I think it is in one sense. It is different in the sense... Like, for instance, if you compare it with Boromir's. Um, what's going on with Boromir? Boromir himself seems unconscious of it. That is, he doesn't realize what's going on. He thinks these are his own spontaneous desires and plans and visions for the future, and he doesn't realize that he's being manipulated and deceived. Goandriel's speech is much more self-conscious, right? She is saying, here is what would happen if I gave into the ring. Um, the reason I put them in the same category is that I think that in both places we can see... Um, we have a character voicing the path that the ring would lead them down if they let it. Um, but Goadriel and Boromir have two very different perspectives on that. Boromir's is, in that sense, I think, almost entirely um, unself-aware, whereas Goadriel is completely self-aware. Um, what she's—it's it, almost like Goadriel is giving a ring-induced monologue in quotation marks, if you see what I mean by that. You know, she's like, if I were to be giving into the ring, if I were to give rein to my thoughts that are going in this direction, here's what I would say, or here's what would happen. Um, Again, with her, it is, a, it is a self-conscious contemplation or explanation of what that path looks like. But I think, in my mind, the path that's being described is, is, is again, not identical, but similar. Um, so that's why I, I, I kind of group them together. Um, yeah, Morgan was just saying exactly the same thing as a self-reflective ring-induced monologue. Yes, I agree. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Rebecca adds, thank goodness for all that time with Melian. Uh, yes, yes, indeed. Um, yeah, good. Gnome is wondering if there's really a change in the ring, or perhaps just a change in how Sam perceives the ring. Gnome, I agree. I think that that's a really important point. Um, and I do think that it's not a coincidence. I mean, if you want to say what has really changed uh, between now and, again, as Luke said, 20 feet up the path. Um, it can't be geographical proximity, right? I mean, there, the ring can't be like, well, the power of the ring is increasing as, like, inverse squared to the distance to Mount Doom, and so, you know, it just crossed this critical threshold where, it, you know, it. I, I, don't, I don't think that we can think about it exactly that way. In, in that way, the significance of what has just happened certainly is in Sam's mind. He is conscious of the fact, I have just stepped over the border. I am in Mordor now. And so his outlook is altered by that. So, Noam, to some extent, I definitely go along with you um, in that direction. But again, the emphasis in the passage does say that the ring, um, that the ring is different. And I'm not sure that... I'm not sure that the two options are quite mutually exclusive. Um, the two things both seem to influence each other. That is, Sam's perception of the ring and the power of the ring itself. Um, so, uh, 
so yeah, I'm not sure that those two things are fully separable, actually. Um, but it's a really good point. Um, okay. Yeah, both Noam and Yana had just pointed out that it's less, it seems to be less about physical distance than line of sight. Uh, Noam says the ring is different when Sam sees Mount Doom. Yes, no sooner had he come in sight of Mount Doom burning far away than he was aware of a change in his burden. Um, yes, yes. Um, yeah, yeah. No, but, but again, I, I think what I was saying about its, um, its being... Um, uh, those two things being heavily interrelated, I think, are I think are really important. Well, other more things. What else? What else do we notice about this? What do we see going on? What does this show us about Sam? And I think you know the the two obvious things that that need to be said about this, right? Are first, what does the nature of his temptation show us about Sam? And second, what does his resistance of that temptation show us about Sam? Um, and the latter thing we've already been talking about, or at least around a little bit, um, which is that it, you know it shows us the great strength of Sam, but also note wherein his strength lies. Right, his strength lies in two things essentially. One is his love for his master. Right, this uh, which. And the second is his humility. The two thing, the thing that those two things really have in common is the fact that both of them work to prevent him from becoming essentially well. The okay, the phrase I'm trying to resist saying, but I'm just going to say it anyway, is self-absorbed. I'm resisting saying that because I think we have some particular associations with that on fairly superficial ways. But that is. The thing that the ring seems to tend to do to people, fundamentally, is turn them inwards on themselves, um, to think about others less, and to think about themselves more, to elevate themselves in their own mind, uh, and exaggerate their own powers and abilities, uh, and rationalize, uh, you know, uh, some kind of dodgy means and ends kinds of questions and things like that. Those seem to be the general pattern of how the ring affects people's minds. Um, and so therefore it seems significant that the two things which are described as essentially well, I was going to say insulating Sam, but that makes him sound passive. Um, the two things which provide Sam, uh, you know, the, the, the artillery that he uses to fight off the ring's sort of psychic assault on him here, um, are two things which maintain his focus outward from himself, which keep him from turning inward like Boromir did, right? Um, you know, his fantasy, with which ends with him as a king, as a mighty king, benevolent and wise, right? Um, or even, you know, Gollum, you know, Gollum the Great, the Gollum, uh, most precious Gollum. Uh, that, that's... Um, or again, Galadriel's speech, um, we can see that kind of self-elevation uh, that, again, Sam is resistant to, first and foremost, because his focus is not on himself, um, but on his master. But then secondly, um, his plain hobbit sense. Um, and his hobbits... But note his hobbits... You know, the, the phrase hobbit sense, um, you can take that in a bunch of different ways. But where the narrator pushes it, he knew in the core of his heart that he was not large enough to bear such a burden. Um, there's a kind of simple honesty, accuracy. He's small, and he knows it, 
right? Um, and he's not going to indulge in grandiose illusions about himself. Um, Don Standing makes a great observation. Sam is a farmer maggot in training. There is clay under his old feet. Uh, yeah, I, I, the compliments that Tom Bombadil gives to Farmer Maggot are very interesting in this context. Uh, both his eyes are open, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good. Kay uh, uh, points out, Sam does not desire power for its own sake, not even a little bit. No, now you might think that his love for his master on its own could potentially mislead him, right? That is, he could say, well, I just want power in order to save Frodo, right? Um, so maybe I should, you know, no, he's, you know, so it's, it's, it's got to be, I think, the combination of the two things. But certainly he doesn't, um, he doesn't want power for himself. He doesn't want glory uh, for himself. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing, of course, as I was mentioning, the other thing that's so fascinating here is the way in which he's tempted. Um, Gollum's temptation, uh, you know, when he's having his little monologue, is, of course, really cute, you know, in its sort of perverse way. Uh, you know, that is, you know, his fantasy of, uh, you know, eating fish every day, three times a day, fresh from the sea. Um you know that's uh that's really cute much cuter than uh, you know then we would make them crawl right you know his uh, his taking of you know then we would pay everybody back um those those are less cute uh than eating fish three times a day straight fresh from the sea um with sam what comes out you know the sort of the 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 the, the angle that the ring chooses to take on him is his desire to first bring about an end to the evil, and second, to turn the realm into a garden to make things grow. Um, but I think that we shouldn't overlook that first one, right? Um, he is tempted to become the conquering hero, Samwise the Strong, hero of the age, right? Um, striding with a flaming sword across the darkened land, uh, and armies flocking to his call as he marched to the overthrow of Barad-dûr. That is the core. It's not just a beautiful little gardening fantasy that he has. That's the follow-up, right? That's what Sam as, you know, uh, as God-King, whatever he would set himself up as, you know, uh, as the Dark Lord, the new sort of Dark Lord that Sam would become if this fantasy came true. Um, yeah, his realm would be a realm of gardens, and it would be it would be awesome. Um, uh, but, uh, but it starts with the flaming sword. Um, <laughs> Morgan points out that even Boromir didn't fancy, fancy himself with a flaming sword. Morgan, maybe Boromir took that for granted. He's like, well, I mean, you know, I think the flaming sword is a given. But then, I don't know. But, um, uh, but yeah, it, it is. It is a you know we can't overlook that quite exalted uh, image that Sam has, and even the more subtle one that came before. Um, he felt himself enlarged as if he were robed in a huge distorted shadow of himself, a vast and ominous threat halted upon the walls of Mordor. Um, and notice what that appeals to. That appeals to how small he feels, right? And this is repeated off, you know, 
what can we do? How can we do anything? The enemy is so strong, and this place is so bleak and hard, and their tasks seem so impossible. How can they hope to achieve what they're doing? How can they, you know, little helpless, largely, hobbits, do anything against the power of the Dark Lord? Um, So, in correction of that, or in compensation for that, the image that he's given is of himself as this vast and ominous threat. Um, He's not feeling like a little tiny bug who could just be squashed by the enemy at any second. No, no, no. No, he is a vast menace, and somewhere the Dark Lord is getting a, a bad feeling that some horrible, powerful person is approaching him, right? Um, and that's a lovely little fantasy. Um, uh, but <clears throat> but then again, of course, it gets even further developed and literalized into that image of him striding with the flaming sword across the darkened land. Um, and armies flocking to his call. I don't know where the armies are coming from, exactly. He's just conjuring them, apparently. Um, but, uh, uh, but anyway, I guess the hero of the age can, can, can do that, I suppose. Um, the Vale of Gorgoroth becoming a garden of flowers and trees and bringing forth fruit seems to me to be a kind of consolation, a kind of rationalization. That is, you can do all this good. Not only can you overthrow Sauron, but look at, you know, you could take this this horrible, barren landscape that you're seeing all around you and turn it into a, turn it into a, a flowering garden that brings forth fruit. Um, that's a good thing, isn't it, right? That's, a, that's an end which is worth even maybe some dubious means to get to it. Right, Sam? Um, So, I mean, it does sort of show us something about him, but I think that we can still see him... um, We can still see him um, tempted, fundamentally, in similar ways to the way that the uh, the others have been... um, The others have been tempted. Um... Yeah, oh, great, Erica. Erica Henson has a great point. Says it's a mirror of Aragorn, in a way. A warrior who brings healing afterward. Uh, In Sam's case, healing of the land. Um, Yeah, and so in that way, Erica, a much broader and even more profound healing than Aragorn is going to bring. Now, Sam doesn't know about the whole healing hands of the king thing, right? But again, but you're right, it's the same pattern, right? See what a good king you would be, Sam? That's the the obvious stamp upon, you know, sort of the, the stamp of sort of moral approval upon what he does, right? If you can bring forth healing like that, then obviously you've done the right thing. Um, But again, what resists this is not a sense of right and wrong, not a debate about means and ends, not any of those things. What, What preserves Sam are his love for Frodo and his own humility, his own accurate sense of his own smallness. Now, um, we should, um, um, we should move on to our next Sam passage. I want to talk about Sam's song, of course, um, in the tower. So here's Sam doing his Fingon impression. Those of you who know the Silmarillion may remember the story of Fingon rescuing Mythros, who has his hand stapled to the wall of Thangorodrim. 
um, and Fingen is searching for him and can't find him and eventually gives up and sits down and begins to sing songs of Valinor and then hears the songs joined in by somebody up above him and that's how he discovers Mithros stapled by his right hand to the side of the cliff uh, and is eventually able to rescue him. Um, that passage being a very direct um, parallel to uh, um, to the passage here with Sam and Frodo. You could also point out that Sam is also doing a Luthien <clears throat> impression as well. Uh, Baron, of course, uh, Frodo is peril to Baron, um, not only in the sense that he's going to lose an appendage, uh, but also because he is uh, the one imprisoned uh, in the tower and being rescued by the one who loves him. Um, uh, and there's a similar singing thing that goes on there. Um, it's not exactly, it's not quite as closely parallel as Fingen and Mithros is, but it's, uh, but it's in the same category. Anyway, that's uh, I've talked about that on my podcast before about the cool stuff that I at least I think it's cool um, that uh, that um, Tolkien does with typology uh, with his own stories here. I don't want to get into that too much t- today, but um, but it's cool enough. I can't forbear to point out at least the parallel. But anyway, back to Sam. At last, weary and feeling finally defeated, he sat on a step below the level of the passage floor and bowed his head into his hands. It was quiet, horribly quiet. The torch that was already burning low when he arrived sputtered and went out, and he felt the darkness cover him like a tide. And then softly, to his own surprise, there at the vain end of his long journey and his grief, moved by what thought in his heart he could not tell, Sam began to sing. His voice sounded thin and quavering in the cold, dark tower, the voice of a forlorn and weary hobbit that no listening orc could possibly mistake for the clear song of an elven lord. He murmured old childish tunes out of the shire, and snatches of Mr. Bilbo's rhymes that came into his mind like fleeting glimpses of the country of his home. And then suddenly new strength rose in him, and his voice rang out, while words of his own came unbidden to fit the simple tune. In western lands beneath the sun the flowers may rise in spring, the trees may bud, the waters run, the merry finches sing. Or there, maybe, tis cloudless night, and swaying beeches bear the elven stars as jewels white amid their branching hair. Though here at journey's end I lie, and darkness buried deep, beyond all towers strong and high, beyond all mountains steep, above all shadows rides the sun, and stars forever dwell. I will not say the day is done, nor bid the stars farewell. Okay, of course, we need to stop and pay close attention to the content of his poem here. Um, Notice we've got two stanzas. In the first stanza, he is not talking about himself, right? He's talking about lands far away, western lands beneath the sun. Um, Is he talking about the Shire, or is he talking about Valinor, I am actually kind of thinking both. In Western lands, I think he's thinking about um, the Shire. Uh, We know he was just thinking about the country of, you know, fleeting glimpses of the country of his home, so we know that the Shire and home is on his mind. Um, But one sort of wonders if from Mordor, if you look out west towards the Shire, uh, do you also sort of see Valinor in the distance behind it? The fact that he's looking westward. Uh, is itself kind of interesting, to, at least, again, imaginatively looking westward. And what does he say about the western lands? They're beneath the sun. What's happening there? 
Nice things are happening there, right? The flowers are rising in spring. The trees bud. The waters run. The the finches sing. Or there, maybe. Again, no, he's imagining, right? He's not he's not asserting. He's imagining. Um, notice all the maze as well, right? These things may be happening in Western lands, right? Um, maybe it's a cloudless night, and swaying beeches bear the elven stars as jewels white amid their branching hair. Um, that is amid the the swaying branches of the beeches. So that that second quatrain, those second four lines there. Um, is this this one unified image of uh, of beauty? Um, this beautiful image of this swaying tree with the stars set like jewels in the hair of its branches on a cloudless night. Um, so far away, there there's probably all this beautiful stuff going on. Now, second stanza. He talks more about himself. Though here at journey's end I lie in darkness buried deep. Now, notice this this is one sentence. The second stanza is one single sentence. We need to pay attention to the syntax. Though here at journey's end I lie... um, We haven't gotten the main subject and verb yet, right? So, although I'm lying here at journey's end, beyond all towers strong and high, beyond all mountains steep, above all shadows, rides the sun and stars forever dwell. What is the main subject and verb of this sentence? It's a, it's, a, it's a compound sentence, so we get two, right? Okay, yes, the sun, right? Um, the sun rides, and stars forever dwell. That's what that sentence is about. Fact. The sun is riding above all shadows, and the stars are forever dwell above all shadows. Although I personally am lying at journey's end, although I am buried in darkness deep, um, but you know what? Despite those things, even though th- those things might be true of me, I know that beyond all the, all the towers, all of them, no matter how strong and high they are, beyond all the mountains, no matter how steep they are, above all shadows, the sun is riding, the stars forever dwell. Therefore, I will not say the day is done nor bid the stars farewell. So, we have defiance, as it's called later on. Um, Rebecca Hunt makes an excellent observation. It's not about hope for success. It's about hope in the knowledge that whatever happens to him, the light will go on. Yeah. Um, Though here at journey's end I lie in darkness buried deep, he is not expressing any hope for himself here. Um, I might, in fact, be at the end of my journey. I might be going to die here. I'm buried deep in darkness. Um, remember the how hopeless just that is by itself. His torch has gone out. He's in complete darkness in this orc tower. Um, you know, with, is he even going to be able to find his way out again, <laughs> much less to find Frodo, right? Um he recognizes all of this. But his thinking back to the Western lands, his thinking back those childish tunes from the Shire and the glimpses of the country of his home, thinking back to the beauty of the Western lands, he is recognizing this fundamental fact. You know what? It doesn't matter, actually. Um, what he has is perspective, 
on his situation. Um, it's related, I would say, it's connected to or comes from the same place that his resistance of the ring in the previous uh, in the previous passage came from, right? That sense of himself, of his own smallness, right? Yeah, I'm buried here in darkness, but you know what? That doesn't change the world, right? That's I might be surrounded by darkness right now, but does that mean the sun and the stars and the western lands are... No. I will not say the day is done, even if my day is done. That doesn't mean the day, capital D, is done. Um, and that last line, nor bid the stars farewell, there is, I think, clear stubbornness there. I might be at the end of my journey, I might be buried in darkness, but I'm not going to give up. Because the sun and stars are still there, right? Um, I'm not going to bid the stars farewell. Day shall come again, <laughs> says James. Yes, day shall come again has been echoing through uh, through many of our classes uh, here as we've been talking about uh, about all this. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good. Um, And this, of course, is the moment when he finds Frodo. That is, it's the song that leads to the success of his mission, of his quest, right? It's, um, so what we see is, in a sense, and I don't want to oversimplify that too much, is sort of an immediate reward, or at least efficacy, of his hope. Right of his stubbornness, at least, if not actual hope in the sense of, uh, you know, uh, uh, um, that uh, you know optimistic prediction of what's going to happen to him, or you know the belief that things are going to probably turn out well for him. It doesn't necessarily seem hope in that sense, um, but hope in the deeper sense, um, him placing himself within that larger context. Um, his reaction to that is just stubbornness, and he is going to keep on, right? He's not going to lie down in that darkness that is burying him and give up. Um, he's going to um, he's going to carry on. I always I find it very interesting, right after this passage he's starting to sing it again um, and it's beyond all tower strong and high that he's saying it's the point that he gets when he's interrupted again um, interrupted by hearing Frodo's response and the orc yelling at him. Um, and I always find that a, I find that an interesting um, uh, moment for him to be, uh, to be interrupted. It, even the way that it's phrased in the book almost makes it to me sound like he went back to there to repeat the ending again as a refrain. Um, that like you know that he was going straight from nor bid the stars farewell beyond all towers strong and high he's going back again. Um, uh, as if he's just going to do a repetition of that act of defiance. Um, defiance of the tower strong and high, and of the shadows and the mountain steep. That's currently his issue, right? That's that's what is surrounding him right now. So he's going to go back to calling that, calling those things out, uh, and stating uh, his own stubbornness, determination. His own stubbornness and determination. Um... Diego makes a really good point, I think. Um, and I agree with you, Diego. He says, notice how it wasn't his idea to start singing. 
um, even surpri- even surprises himself by doing it. It may have been caused by something other than his own will. Diego, I am very open to that reading here. Um, uh, moved by what thought in his heart he could not tell, Sam began to sing, um, to his own surprise. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, it is almost like it is not entirely his idea. Kind of like, you know, go, you compare, Diego, compare that description to the description of Frodo's voice when Frodo volunteers to be the ring bearer at the end of the Council of Elrond. Um, there it's even more direct. You know, it is as if some other will were using Frodo's small voice. Um, that kind of intervention we've seen before. Um, again, much more, <clears throat> much more directly, I think. Um, so, um, yeah, who's, uh, <laughs> Tom also, Tom also points out that, uh, the poetry here is better than Sam's usual rhyming. Um, yeah, I, uh, I guess so. Um, so that troll song is pretty rocking, I gotta tell you. Um, Kay makes a good point. It does say that they are words of his own. While words of his own came unbidden to fit the simple tune, though again, Kay, one could say that the unbiddenness of the word might suggest some kind of an inspiration as well. That words of his own could be understood to mean he's not singing a song, unlike Mr. Bilbo's rhymes and stuff. He's not reciting a song he already knew. He's inventing on the spot a song, but those that invention, those words, are coming unbidden. Uh, to his mind, so you could say there's an inspiration uh, going on there. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Kay says, I'm starting to suspect that Tolkien liked being elvish and uh, and, and saying both no and yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, that's... Um, uh, they, uh, yeah, I often think both no and yes uh, are, are often the answer here uh, with many of these passages. Um but notice here Sam's response, Sam's thoughts here, he is kind of putting himself in context. But his response to this is not exactly theological. Um, his only response is, I will not say the day is done nor bid the stars farewell again. Uh, the narrator will call this defiance. Um, uh, later on, we're going to look at that passage next. Um, I would call it stubbornness, uh, those last two lines. Um, but let's go ahead and look to, so you can see what I mean. Because I want to do some comparison and contrast here, because there's some great similarities between what Sam sings in his song and what happens here. And the narrator reminds us of that, really inviting us to compare these two. So I want to take up that, that uh, invitation. Sam struggled with his own weariness, and he took Frodo's hand. This is, of course, after they've gotten out, uh, and this is in chapter 2 now of book 6. And he took Frodo's hand, and there he sat silent till deep night fell. Then at last, to keep himself awake, he crawled from the hiding place and looked out. The land seemed full of creaking and cracking and sly noises, but there was no sound of voice or of foot. Far above the Efelduath in the west, the the night sky was still dim and pale. There, peeping among the cloud-rack above a dark tor high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart. 
and as he looked up out of the forsaken land, and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. His song in the tower had been defiance rather than hope, for then he was thinking of himself. Now, for a moment, his own fate, and even his master's, ceased to trouble him. He crawled back into the brambles, and laid himself by Frodo's side, and putting away all fear, he cast himself into a deep, untroubled sleep. Okay. Um, yeah, a couple people, Rebecca and Diego, are both suggesting that this is uh, uh, Gil Estel, a Arendel star. Um, doesn't explicitly say that, it just says that he saw a white star twinkle for a while. Could be any star. Um, certainly, whether it is actually Arendel's star or not, um, it is uh, playing a similar function to the star of High Hope. Um, Noam is recalling, of course, the elven stars as jewels uh, that were in Sam's songs before. Um... Uh, so anyway, I, I am. Uh, Rebecca is uh, is is chiding me for dragging my feet about identifying the star as a Rendell star. My point is not that I, I I'm trying to just be uh, 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 you know a, a wet blanket about that, um, but rather um, I, I I do agree that it plays. It plays a similar, a similar role, whether it's the same star or not. Um, it is for Sam a star, a star of hope. So one way or another, it's fine. Um, but, um, but similarities and differences between this and the song. What's different here? What's similar first, and second, what's different? One thing, clearly, is that same the insight that he has here is similar to the insight that he had before, right? Um, beyond all towers, above all shadows, rides the sun, and stars forever dwell, right? The stars are above the towers, they're above the steep mountains, they're above the, the, the strong and, 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 and high towers. Um, the stars and the sun are there. You know, he is a small thing. The mountains and towers are bigger, but the sun and the stars are above them. So that same basic sense of the order of the universe and the relative position, not only of himself, but also of the evil things, um, seems fundamentally similar uh, in, those, in, those two, in those two things. Chris has an interesting point. He says it's also similar in that it seems to start outside of Sam. Yes, yes. Here he is sort of stricken with this um, thought, right? He's pierced by this thought. So we see him again being sort of inspired with this insight, right? The, you know, the, ha- having this uh, this insight kind of planted in him. Though I would suggest that one major difference is that um, he... His understanding seems to be more actively involved here. Um, 
the words are coming unbidden. Uh, the words of this song are coming unbidden to his lips. It is conceivable that he. Let me say it a different way. Potentially, it's debatable how much he is even thinking about the words that he's saying in the song. To what extent um, those words are emerging as a reflection of his own comprehension. Um, but, um, but even assuming that they are, I think that there are, that there are some differences here too. Um, Don points out the size of the shadow is here more clearly articulated. There's more certainty in it. Um, yes, I agree. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, good, let's see. Sorry, I'm just scanning through a whole bunch of comments that came in here at the same time. Um, Noam says, the idea in the song doesn't comfort Sam. The reality of the idea as he sees it does. No, I agree. The difference in the response is, to me, the biggest difference between those two things. Um, Sam responds by not giving up in the tower, right? He is um, singing his song in stubborn defiance. Um, his song in the tower had been defiance rather than hope, says the narrator here, um, suggesting that what he's experiencing here is hope, in a sense, hope in a dimension that he did not have, that he wasn't experiencing. And again, you go back to the song there, um, though here at Journey's End I Lie, potentially concedes the fact that it's the end of his journey, right? Maybe it is the end of my journey. doesn't matter, right? I'm still not going to say the day is done nor bid the stars farewell. Um, however, here, um, he responds in hope. No, had been defiance rather than hope, for then he was thinking of himself. And that's true, right? And that last stanza does begin and end with himself. Um, I might be here at the end of the journey, but I don't care. Here's what I'm going to do anyway, because the sun, uh, you know, the sun is still riding, the stars are still shining, um, so therefore I'm going to do this. Now, we're told, He's not thinking of himself. Now, for a moment, his own fate and even his master's cease to trouble him. Even his master's. That's a big deal for Sam, right? He stops worrying about himself and Frodo. And what does he do? He goes to sleep. He stops keeping guard. Why? Hope. Faith, I would say. Um, now, I hedged this. We talked about faith um, I was using that term in the Two Towers class, and those of you who uh, took the Two Towers class with me will remember that. Um, and there I kind of hedged it about with qualifications, um, which I won't repeat now. Um, but uh, but there seems this does seem to be here. His the action that he takes at the end is not just an action of stubbornness on his own part, of his own refusal to not give up, because again. He's not thinking about himself, as the narrator has said. Um, instead, he makes a leap of faith. Um, he is, as Sharon says, having he's having a moment of transcendence, right? He's seeing, you know what? We are in the hands of providence here. Um, this is this is out of our hands. Um, 
there's a, a similar way in which both the song and Sam's insight here put him and their quest into perspective, right? Um, but here, his response to it is different. Um, again, it fueled his own determination. Last, the first time, it fuels his own determination to go on remembering the beauty in, that the beauty in the Western lands is there, and that's good. And remembering that the sun and the stars are still up there um, helps to fuel his resistance, right? Therefore, I'm not going to give up. Here, it's different. Seeing those things, seeing that bigger picture and seeing his own place in it, um, he sort of realizes, you know, uh, we're in good hands here. And that doesn't mean that he is now sublimely confident that they're going to win, right? Or that he knows for... He goes he goes back in and goes to sleep because he is 100% certain that they will be protected. No, I don't think that's really the case. But what he does seem to believe in this moment, um, the hope that he's talking about there is that, you know what? It doesn't all depend on them, Right? Um, remember the line when Sam is debating at the end of the Two Towers um, in one of the choices that he makes that gives the title to the final chapter of the Two Towers um, when he's trying to decide whether he should take the ring from Frodo or not. Um, remember how he says, um, oh, you know, if uh, they get the ring, then, you know, that's the end of all of it, you know, of 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 you know, of Lorien and the Shire and all. Um, what weighs on his decision is the fate of the whole world, right? And I, he knows he's sure to go wrong, right? Similarly, Frodo. When Frodo in the Tower of Kirith Ungol says, you know, it re- you know, is sort of fully realizing the significance of the fact that they seem to have taken the ring from him, um, you know, he says, "Do you do you see like that? You know, uh, uh, you know, only the elves can. You know, th- there's no escape. Only the elves can escape now. Um, you know, if even the sea is wide enough to keep out the shadow, right? You know, he's so he's he's one upping, uh, you know, Sam's uh, thoughts from the end of the two towers, right? Uh, it, you know, Sauron's probably not even going to conquer Valinor. Is, is Frodo thinking in that moment of despair? Um, again." The significant thing, what I would say is really significant there, is again, he sees their quest. The quest has failed, right? It's over. Um, we've lost, and evil and darkness have won and will prevail. What Sam sees in this moment is, you know what? That isn't going to happen. It's just flat not possible. Um, the Shadow can't blot out the stars. It can come between those of us down here on the ground and the stars and make it dark for us. But that doesn't change the stars even a little bit. The stars are completely unapproachable by the shadow. Evil can't win. It's not going to happen. And therefore... Maybe we'll be safe. Maybe we won't be safe. But you know what? It's all good. It's, it's all good. It's all good. It's all good. You know, uh, it, it, in a sense, doesn't matter. Um, but again, not 
you know, I'm not, of course, depicting him as like, and then Sam, fueled by his newfound apathy, <laughs> goes to bed, right? It's not about apathy here. Um, it's about hope. You know, he realizes one way, maybe we're, maybe our quest will succeed beyond all expectations that we have looking at it right now. Um, which is, of course, exactly what is going to happen. That luck is going to intervene on their behalf again and again and again throughout their trip to Mordor, right? As they get light just when they wanted it, as they get water when they need it, as they get captured by orcs and driven along like slaves just when they needed to be driven along by slaves in order to get past the place that they couldn't get past, um, and to the other side of where all the armies are marching so that they can then proceed on towards Mount Doom. Um, You know, all of these things conspire to make their trip possible. But again, that's not, I think, what Sam is counting on. You know, he's he, again, his insight is not so simplistic. It's not so self-centered. Um, it's not so magical as it's okay, I don't have to worry because good is way more powerful than evil, and we're fighting for good. Therefore, we're guaranteed to win, and everything's guaranteed to turn out fine, so I'm not going to worry anymore. It's not it at all. Right? It's that whether they succeed or not, in the end, the shadow can't win. So don't worry about it so much. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, as Noam says, uh, the bigger the picture, the more hope there is. Uh, it's the opposite of Denethor. Yeah, yeah. It, it's It's sort of the tragic irony of how Denethor is manipulated, right? Um, Denethor has more information, right? Gandalf's hope is but ignorance. If Gandalf knew everything that Denethor knew, he too would despair. He's only continuing to hope just because he lacks all that information that Denethor has. Now, keep in mind, Denethor's information is accurate. That is, what he has seen is all real stuff. But his interpretation of it, both his um, his immediate interpretation of it, that is, like, that fleet with black sails that's coming up the river is not, in fact, full of bad guys, as he believes it is, but also his interpretation in the bigger sense, right? That seeing what I've seen means that we have no possible hope of victory. Um, for all the fact that he see- he believes he's seeing more widely, in fact, his view is being constrained not broadened, um, and he is what his what is what he is being shown is very selective, and uh, the interpretation that he puts on it is a very partial interpretation. But again, if you really see the big picture, as Frodo himself or as Sam himself here in this moment has uh, has that insight, then that leads not to despair, um, but to but to hope. Uh, Luke. Uh, okay, that's my favorite comment of the night, Luke. Luke uh, says, uh, thinking of Frodo and Sam's journey, whether they win or not, uh, Luke says, their journey could have been different, but it couldn't have been better. Yeah, Luke, that's more or less exactly what I'm trying to say. For those of you who don't recognize it, Luke is here quoting a line from Leaf by Niggle, near the end of Tolkien's short story, Leaf by Niggle, um, which is one of my very favorite Tolkien lines um, uh, of all time. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, exactly like that, Luke. Uh, 
Um, Sarah is asking, is this the transcendence of northern courage? Um, it's moving beyond northern courage. We're going to come back to northern courage. Um, that is the kind of the kind of courage, the kind of response that we see uh, in the heroic traditions of the North. You know, the uh, Norse uh, and Germanic um, legends. We're going to come back to that. We'll see northern courage going on um, when we get to it. Um, the point I will be making is that I think this is very different. This is not Northern. This is, in fact, fundamentally contrary to Northern. The One of the primary things that characterizes, that makes Northernness so um, peculiar, and I mean that in, a, in an objective sense. I don't mean it's weird. I mean it's different. What makes it distinguished uh, from most other traditions is its hopelessness. Um, in the northern tradition, in the Norse tradition, the Norse and Germanic tradition, uh, the, the Norse tradition does not hold that the good guys are going to win. Um, Odin and the gods are going to, to die. They're going to fail. The giants are going to win and chaos is going to rule. Um, uh, that's so, so in many ways, what we're getting here is the opposite of the northern spirit. But we will get some of that northern courage coming in later on uh, there as well. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, well, let's actually go ahead and look at what I want to look at next, so let's go ahead and do that. He shook his head. And as he worked things out, slowly a new dark thought grew in his mind. Never for long had hope died in his staunch heart, and always until now he had taken some thought for their return. But the bitter truth came home to him at last. At best their provision would take them to their goal, and when the task was done, there they would come to an end, alone, houseless, foodless, in the midst of a terrible desert. There could be no return. So that was the job I felt I had to do when I started, thought Sam. To help Mr. Frodo to the last step and then die with him? Well, if that is the job, then I must do it. But I would dearly like to see Bywater again, and Rosie Cotton and her brothers, and the gaffer and Marigold and all. I can't think somehow that Gandalf would have sent Mr. Frodo on this errand if there hadn't have been ever any hope of his ever coming back at all. Things all went wrong when he went down in Moria. I wish he hadn't. He would have done something. But even as hope died in Sam, or seemed to die, it turned to a new strength. Sam's plain hobbit face grew stern, almost grim, as the will hardened in him, and he felt through all his limbs a thrill, as if he was turning into some creature of stone and steel that neither despair nor weariness nor endless barren miles could subdue. That is the northern response. There Sam is responding. Here we have him responding like a Viking hero. This is what Sam... Um, this is That's the northern spirit. Despair leading you to uh, firmness of resolution. Luke, yes, just like Aemir. It's this very similar spirit to the spirit of defiance that Aemir shows when he, when he, uh, when he laughs at death and lifts up his sword to defy uh, the ships as they come up to the Harland. Um, that is the, uh, the same northern spirit uh, that Amir is feeling there. Um, um, 
Yeah, yeah. Um, now, how does this fit? Does this contradict what he saw before? What do we do with this? Is, are these just? Is this Sam? Has he lost the hope that he had? Because now we see, you know, he 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 had hope, right? Um, he got hope when he saw the star thing, as we say. You know, we were in the boss pa- passage we we looked at before, um, and now hope is dying in him. How do we understand this? Do we understand this as a contradiction? Yes. Morgan, I agree with both Morgan and Kay here. Morgan says, hope for himself versus the big picture uh, existential hope um, are different. Yes, yes. Um, Yeah. Hope for himself. This is hope in the sense of a belief that things are going to turn out well for him. Right? A... Remember the question that Sam asked... Um, back uh, on the stairs of Kirathungal, you know, wondering whether th- what kind of story they'd gotten themselves landed in, right? Whether it was a happy ending or a sad ending story. Um, that's the hope. The hope that it's going to be a happy ending story, right? This is the moment where Sam says, oh, okay, sad ending story. Okay. I'm reconciled to a sad ending. Um... I accept that. So he no, he no longer has hope that um, that he is going to come to a good end. But Tom Hillman makes a really important point here. Um, Tom Hillman emphasizes what we get right here. Even as hope died in Sam, or seemed to die, it was turned to a new strength. Notice how the narrator just kind of tosses that in there, right? Uh that maybe Sam's hope, even in this sense, is not quite dead, right? Um, uh, it might uh, it might get better later on. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, his thoughts about the future for himself, those seem to be that's that's the hope that he start, and again, his response to that, his response to losing that hope is, Resolution. He is determined to see his story through to the end. He is not going to respond to that in despair, in passivity, in the way that Denethor did. Right? He's going to move in the opposite direction from Denethor. Um, when he becomes as convinced as Denethor was convinced that their story is going to have a sad ending, um, nevertheless, he's going to respond in this opposite way. And he responds with what sounds exactly like Northern Courage. Um, what's that line from the Battle of Malden? Um, you know that mine shall be uh, mine shall be stronger. What is it? Uh, where is it? I had it here. Alyssa had just quoted it earlier today. Mord shall the Mara swa mayan Um Yes, that uh, uh, you know that my my determination shall be greater as our strength lessens. Um, that's that's the northern spirit. That's the idea, um, and that's what Sam is showing here. But again, now going back to the previous passage, though, um, we get this combination of things. This is his response to his hope in his own situation, but I think that it's informed by that other one, right? Um, it's strengthened by his 
broader hope, by that insight, uh, that sort of that transcendental insight that he got earlier on um, through his glimpse of the star. That although he doesn't, um, although he doesn't believe anymore, or mostly doesn't believe, it seemed to die, um, that his story is going to be a happy one. Nevertheless, he believes that writ large, the story of the world is going to be a happy story. Um, as even as again going back to the stairs of Kirathongo, as he was reflecting even then at the time, because of course. Um, the stories that have happy endings aren't always the best stories to read. Um, even going back beyond that, back to the Fellowship of the Ring, you'll remember that the story of Baron and Luthien, which uh, at many points doesn't look like a happy ending story, um, brings comfort to um, to the hobbits as they are in fear of the Black Riders. Um, even stories when they are sad, or even the sadness of stories, when you reflect upon it, um, brings comfort, brings, even in a sense, hope. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good. Well, we, again, in the, in the Two Towers class, we spent a lot of time looking carefully at the debate that Sam has, I still hold with himself, um, about whether or not he should take the ring and go. Here we have another debate by Sam that I want to be looking at here. And again, how does this fit into the picture? What do we see going on with Sam here and the choices that he's making? He could not sleep, and he held a debate with himself. Well, come now, we've done better than you'd hoped, he said sturdily. Began well anyway. I reckon we crossed half the distance before we stopped. One more day will do it. And then he paused. Don't be a fool, Sam Gamgee, came an answer in his own voice. He won't go another day like that if he moves at all. And you can't go on much longer, giving him all the water and most of the food. I can go on a good way, though, and I will. Where to? To the mountain, of course. But what then, Sam Gamgee, what then? When you get there, what are you going to do? He won't be able to do anything for himself. To his dismay, Sam realized he had not got an answer to this. He had no clear idea at all. Frodo had not spoken much to him of his errand, and Sam only knew vaguely that the ring had somehow to be put into the fire. The cracks of doom, he muttered, the old name rising to his mind. Well, if Master knows how to find them, I don't. There you are, came the answer. It's all quite useless. He said so himself. You're the fool, going on hoping and toiling. You could have lain down and gone to sleep together days ago if you hadn't been so dogged. But you'll die just the same or worse. You might just as well lie down now and give it up. You'll never get to the top anyway. I'll get there if I have to leave everything but my bones behind, said Sam, and I'll carry Mr. Frodo up myself if it breaks my back and heart. So stop arguing. Okay. What do you see here? Erica asks, is this simply Sam debating himself, or could this be ring-induced? Chris was just asking the same question. How much of this is ring-induced? What do you guys think about that? Is this a ring-induced debate, do you think? Is the ring the force behind that other voice, which is speaking in his own voice? 
What do you think? Um, I assume that it's the second voice, the negative voice, the hopeless and despairing voice that we're wondering about. Um, and uh, I don't think so. I wouldn't think that would be ring-induced. And the main thing is, again, I compare it to other things the ring does. Um, and I don't think... It doesn't sound like what the ring does. Um, the ring doesn't seem to lead to despair. It leads to false hope, right? Like you're going to raise your voice and somehow armies are going to pop, <laughs> you know, show up, right? Um, that's the kind of thought that the ring leads you to have, not it's all hopeless. The ring seems to not want you to think that. Um, so I don't think that's the ring there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, as Sarah says, the ring doesn't seem to tempt people to simply give up. Um, yeah, no, no. Um, Kay says maybe it's a palantir voice. It certainly is like... he's. It certainly sounds like Denethor, right? If that other voice sounds like anybody, it sounds like Denethor. Um, you know, even... Uh, um, uh, the line about uh, how, you know, you could have uh, lain down and gone to sleep days ago. Um, um, yeah, you could have lain down and gone to sleep together days ago if you hadn't been so dogged. Um, just just like Denethor wants to do, right? We can at least die together. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, nifty. Kay says they, 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 they did lie down together and go to sleep days ago. Um, that thinking back to the star passage, Kay, I assume you are. Um, yeah, it was a, it was different, right? Um, yeah. Um, Don points out, and I agree with you, Don, um, he had not got an answer to this is an interesting line. Um, uh, Notice, reason is not on the side of positive Sam, right? If we can characterize these as, you know, determined Sam and despairing Sam, determined Sam does not have reason on his side, right? Uh, uh, the rational arguments are really kind of on the side of despairing Sam, Um Notice that's where it starts off, right? With Sam saying things which are cheerful, but unlikely, right? Um, one more day will do it. Don't be a fool. He won't go another day like that if he moves at all. Um, and you can't go on much longer giving him all the water and most of the food. Both of those statements, perfectly true, very sound, um... Yeah. <laughs> Rebecca says, Determined Sam does not counsel prudence. Uh, no. Nor reason, it turns out. Um, 
and Luke was pointing out that we trusted to friendship and not to wisdom a while ago. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, no, exactly. Um, there is, uh, there is definitely precedent uh, for this. As Tom points out, yeah, once again, the right choice is the wrong choice, right? Um, going on and persevering to try to do this thing which doesn't really seem possible. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, now, I mean, it's certainly... The parallels are not exactly identical, right? I mean, we don't really have a choice between prudent and imprudent. I mean, the question of, should I keep going when it seems hopeless, or should I just lay down and die? You know, that does... You know, to just... Yeah. Lay myself and my burden down and, 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 and just submit to death. That's not really a question of prudent versus imprudent, right? Because it's not like giving up to death is more prudent than um, going on in despair. Um, but but there are certainly perils. There are certainly those those they feel similar, don't they? Um, the one is 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 you know the, it's 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 conventional rationality, right? It's just like well, let's just look at this thing square in the face and see what this leads to. The fact is. From here, it looks like, rationally speaking, there's almost a 0% chance of you making it, right? So why bother? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Tom says it's more prudent than getting caught at the seventh hour with the ring by Sauron. I guess, I guess, who knows what he would do to you uh, at that point. So yeah, I suppose that that doesn't seem to be the choice he's really making here. But uh, uh, but yeah, yeah, there is that. Um, um, all Sam ends with is stubbornness again. I'll get there if I leave everything but my bones behind, and I'll carry my Mr. Frodo up myself if it breaks my back and heart, so stop arguing. Uh, shut up, he says, to reason and despair, and it responds only with doggedness, with determination, with his determination to do the job that he's been, he's been using that language since the Fellowship of the Ring, right? He feels like he's got a job to do, uh, then, uh, you know, he uses that same language back at the beginning of the Two Towers when he's trying to plan out their meals along their journey and says to Frodo, how long is it going to take us to do the job? Um, and now he now feels he understands better what the job is to do. That his job may very well... His job is to get Frodo to Mount Doom, right? That's his job. Notice his... The fact that he's ignorant about what's supposed to happen there. I don't know where the cracks of doom are. I don't know really what's supposed to happen. Is there a thing you do? Is there like a ritual thing? Is there, I don't know what's supposed to happen. I just know, get Frodo to Mountain Doom. That's my job, right? Um, and so when he does his job, even when he realizes that he doesn't have an answer uh, for what's going to happen when they get to Mountain Doom, notice how he kind of backs off of this. Um, he kind of admits... If Master knows how to find them, I don't. Right? I, he can't finish the quest, right? But his response to that, that's not his job, right? His job is to get Frodo there. And then it's up to Frodo to destroy the ring. Um, and he is simply determined uh, that he's going to... Uh, um, 
simply determined that he's going to persevere. Um, Carissa says, um, let's see. Yeah, and Carissa pointing to Frodo saying, uh, you know, the whole thing is quite hopeless. Uh, you know, so it's no good worrying about tomorrow. It probably won't come. So it's, struck, it's a very striking line, I think. Um, a remarkable insight into faith uh, within hopelessness. Um, yes, Frodo is willing to trust to his to their luck or to their blessing. Right, um, Frodo has his own insights into the action of providence in what's going on there, though he does not seem to be able to keep it as consistently in view as uh, Sam is. But that's a different discussion topic, which really is about Frodo. And that's not what I'm interested in talking about tonight. I want to talk about Sam. Um, but, um... Yeah, let's see. Um... <laughs> I'm not trying to rebuke you, Carissa. I'm just being stubborn. Um, but, uh... Yeah, I, I agree with Kay, and I think Diego as well. Um... They're pointing out that, of course, it's not its not actually true that all reason is against Sam there at the end. Um, Kay says, the voice wants Sam to give up because the end looks impossible, um, even though the very wise uh, could see... Uh, you know, could not see that end beyond all doubt. Um, both Kay and uh, Diego are quoting that uh, the line from Gandalf about despair um, way back in the Council of Elrond. Uh, despair is only for those who see the end beyond all doubt. We do not. It is wisdom to recognize necessity when all other courses have been weighed, though as folly it may appear to those who cling to false hope. The problem, Diego, of course, right, is clinging to false hope is exactly what Sam is being accused of by himself here, right? Um, that going on is not necessity. It's false hope, right? Um, and we do see the end beyond all doubt. But, turns out, no. Sam's doggedness, in fact, pays off and turns out to be right. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so again, think of the things that we see here. We see Sam's stubbornness. So in some ways it seems, again, it's, it's like an echo of the stubbornness that he was showing in the tower at the end of his song, right? But I would say that it's not exactly the same as that, or at least it's been... We've got the two other things that have come in between. I could, even just thinking of the passages that I've picked out here. Um, uh, you know, you've got his stubbornness in the song, his insight in that scene where he sees the star, that moment of northern courage when he is, like, being, you know, changed into something made of stone and steel. And then you have this moment where, again, he's just sort of... He's responding in stubbornness that he's not going to give up no matter what. He's going to keep going on. He's going to do his job. He's going to get Frodo to the mountain if it breaks his back and heart and if he has to leave everything but his bones behind. Um, Again, stubbornness... stubbornness which now is sort of seasoned much more deeply by that northern courage. See, in order to get that northern courage effect, in order to to really turn into the thing of stone and steel that he becomes, you've got to be 
in a he, he still had it good back in the Tower of Kirathongal, right? It seemed pretty bad at the time. It was nothing like so bad as this, right? Um, now he really, you know, he was in darkness. He was in doubt. He was afraid. Um, now he feels like he can really see the end beyond all doubt. Um, and yet he's not going to give up. And yet he's going to continue. He's going to respond to despair with determination. And we see his determination persisting despite any arguments to the contrary. And in the midst of this, and overlaying all of this, I think, is that larger hope. Um, that bigger hope, which is both a big, a big picture hope, which is not about himself, but also, I think, does still persistently impact his own choices. I, you know, again, I'll come back to the point that Tom was making about how we're told in the Northern Courage passage that Sam's hope only seemed, you know, died or seemed to die. I don't think that even that hope in Sam dies completely. Instead, um, he his own sense of the overall hope, the overall big picture, um, does seem to lead him to hold out hope that he will get help. Um, that if their quest is going to be the means of the defeat uh, of evil here, if if whether or not they... Because remember their escape... Um, when he in his northern courage moment, it's not a question of we're never going to get it to the mountain. Now I know for a fact we're never going to get to the mountain, right? That's not the issue. The issue is, well, once we achieve the quest, we're totally going to die there, right? There can't be any return. We don't have enough food or water for a return journey. It's not going to happen. Even if we succeed, we're going to die. That's when he has that moment of despair, giving up on any future life. And basically saying goodbye to all of those hopes and dreams and memories that involve Rosie Cotton and her brothers. Her brothers are totally central in those fantasies that he has uh, about the future. <laughs> they, they get an honorable mention with Rosie Cotton. But anyway, um, all those things, he's going he's gonna to let them go. He's going to give up on all those things um, in order to do the job. Here in the debate passage, it's the question of whether he's going to continue even doing the job. It's not a question of whether you think you're going to die afterwards, but whether or not you think you're even going to go through with the job. And that he absolutely refuses to give up on. And there, I think, as I say, I think that his point of view is informed by that, uh, by some stubborn hope for himself and for them, and not without reason his eyes have been a little more open than Frodo's, as I said, to the assistance that they've been getting, right? Um, they've been very lucky. They have been very blessed. Um, even though, goodness knows, it's been awful enough, their trip across Mordor, but it has succeeded because he, um, because they have received help. Um, Sarah says, Sarah Lagarde says, it's no longer stubbornness, it's perseverance. Sarah, I like that distinction. I think that works very well. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um, 
Yeah, and Luke says they receive help uh, from the hero of the story, Gollum. Uh, sort of, Luke, yes. But let's get to Gollum, because this is, of course, another major choice by Sam here. Um, now, said Sam, at last I can deal with you. He leaped forward with drawn blade, ready for battle. But Gollum did not spring. He fell flat upon the ground and whimpered. Don't kill us, he wept. Don't hurt us with nasty, cruel steel. Let us live, yes, live just a little longer. Lost, lost, we're lost. And when precious goes, we'll die, yes, die into the dust. He clawed up the ashes of the path with his long, fleshless fingers. Dust, he hissed. Sam's hand wavered. His mind was hot with wrath and the memory of evil. It would be just to slay this treacherous, murderous creature, just and many times deserved. And also it seemed the only safe thing to do, but deep in his heart there was something that restrained him. He could not strike this thing lying in the dust, forlorn, ruinous, utterly wretched. He himself, though only for a little while, had borne the ring, and now dimly he guessed the agony of Gollum's shriveled mind and body, enslaved to that ring, unable to find peace or relief ever in life again. But Sam had no words to express what he felt. "'Oh, curse you, you stinking thing,' he said. "'Go away. Be off. I don't trust you, not as far as I could kick you, but be off. Or I shall hurt you, yes, with nasty, cruel steel.' Okay, so what do we see here? Of course, we see Sam having pity again, right? We see again recapitulated that moment of pity. This is the third time now. First with Bilbo in The Hobbit, second with Frodo at the Emmon Wheel, and third with Sam here on Mount Doom as the three three hobbits who have stood there with uh, Gollum at sword point, in fact, at the point of the same sword, uh, and all three of them. And um, he's got to get tired of having Sting held to his throat, wouldn't you, wouldn't you think? Um, anyway, and all three of them choose pity, and for the same reasons. All three of them are able to invest themselves in his suffering, to feel empathy for Gollum and for the hopelessness of Gollum's position, and for the terrible corruption of Gollum's life. Um, Now, Carissa points out this is not just pity, it's also mercy. Yes, his choice to have mercy. Though there I would say the difference is between the action and the motivation. That is, mercy is is, is what he does. He shows mercy to Gollum by not killing him. Um... Mercy is a description of the fact that he does not kill him. Pity is what motivates his mercy, right? Not to kill him is to have mercy. For whatever reason you do it, you've had mercy. He's had mercy on him by not killing him. Um, But he could be motivated to show mercy by several things, and it's explicitly pity that he um, that he is feeling Um, that something in his heart that restrains him, Um, and. First, you know, on the one hand, it's simply generalized pity, pity for some, for a thing lying in the dust, forlorn, ruinous, and utterly wretched. Sam would have pity on any thing that was like that. 
but now he can understand Gollum. Remember, Sam was very antagonistic to Gollum before, and I think that we need to understand this in the context of Sam's own character. Why was Sam such a jerk to Gollum before? Um, Why was he, in Gollum's words, uh, you know, the cross-rude hobbit uh, to Gollum? Um, Why? Why Why did Frodo seem so much more, not just seem, why was Frodo so much more magnanimous than Sam? Um, I don't think it's because Sam is a you know much more morally limited person than Frodo, or that it's uh, all about their class distinctions or something. Um, I, I don't think that's the point at all. You got to look at it from Sam's perspective. Sam is not thinking about the quest. He's not thinking about Gollum. He's not thinking about the. He's thinking about Frodo, right? Um, his Gollum has been one of those primary threats that he's been trying to protect Frodo from. He can see that Gollum is still dangerous. He doesn't trust Gollum even a little bit, and of course, he's quite right not to trust Gollum even a little bit. Um, and um, he... Um, and so, his point of view from the whole time is i got to stand between Gollum and Frodo. Right? I don't approve of taking Gollum along. I wish we could leave him behind. I wish he was choked. Um, you know, he would much rather see Gollum. He would like to jump forward uh, and tell him, uh, uh, you know, and tell uh, Anborn to shoot um, in the pool by Hennetha Noon. Um, he would much rather see Gollum dead because dead he is no threat to his master anymore. But you'll notice all of those things. Never once is he thinking about Gollum himself. Never once is he empathizing with Gollum or even asking himself, what does Gollum feel? And partly, that's because he had no insight into that. Again, to him, remember Frodo's own point of view at the beginning, back, I mean, the way beginning, in the conversation with Gandalf in Chapter 2 of the Fellowship of the the Ring. Remember Frodo's comment right before Gandalf gave the response which Frodo heard in flashback there in the Two Towers. Um, Surely... Surely he's he's as bad as an orc and just an enemy. He deserves death, right? Notice Frodo's depersonalizing of Gollum there, right? He's just as bad as an orc. He should be put in. Obviously, he should be in the orc category now, right? That is something which is merely an enemy, something which is dehumanized, something which does not um, have any kind of redeeming qualities. This, for better or for worse, this is this is how. Uh, orcs were depicted and understood. Now, though, he... Frodo, when he meets him, he does pity him. He sees him differently. Now Sam has a new insight because he himself had borne the ring and can begin to understand. He has felt uh, the ring gnawing at his mind. Um, What a wonderful metaphor that is, contained in that word gnawing. Um, way back in the very first passage we looked at tonight um, about what the ring does. When the ring is gnawing at your mind like that, this is what it does to you, right? Um, Sam can now imagine, golly, I had the ring for, what, a few hours, right? And I remember what it did to me. Imagine having it for 500 years and having that gnawing away at you like that. He can now understand Gollum a little bit better. Um, Yeah. Yeah, um, and uh, it's I think it's very important that he, um, you know, Carolyn says points out two things. Uh, first of all, 
um, the sort of the irony of Gollum saying lost, lost, the irony of he was the guide, right? Um, you know, the, their guide, you know, Gollum, who was the guide, has been lost for a very long time, uh, says Carolyn. I think it's a very good way of putting it. There is, there is a, a strong irony there. Um, but Carolyn goes on to add, Sam has the moral strength to give mercy even when his and Frodo's safety is in question. Um, yeah, yeah. Again, he has every, in, in, at least as much motivation now. Gollum has just attacked them, right? He has every reason to think, you know what? Prudent thing, I should off him right now, right? So that, because remember, his job's done. He's gotten Frodo to the cracks of doom, and there he went. Frodo just went to the cracks of doom. What's Sam got left to do? Well, at least he's got to watch his back, right? So, so now, um, you know, you remember the um, uh, the attitude that Sam had way back in the Fellowship of the Ring. You know, when they're in Farmer Maggot's in the back of Farmer Maggot's cart, and they hear a they hear a horse coming. It turns out to be Mary, but they think it's Black Riders, right? And there's that wonderful line where. Um, you know, the, the narrator is telling us Sam is clearly feeling, you know, that black riders would have to ride over him to get to Frodo, right? Well, that's pretty much his job, right? Uh, you know, he's going to, at the very least he can do is guard Frodo's back as Frodo goes to do whatever it is he's supposed to do at the Cracks of Doom. And here's Gollum, right? Gollum is there. Gollum has already attacked them. Clearly what he should do is just stab the vile creature and have done... Um, so to so as to ensure that he's not gonna oh I don't know jump in and like bite Frodo's finger off or something, um, but he doesn't choose to do that. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Tom Tom Hillman points out, uh, despite his newfound understanding of Gollum, he despises him so much that he's disappointed that he feels pity for him. No wonder he could find no words. Um, yeah, I, 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 you know, Tom, all that, that old distrust hasn't gone away, right? I mean, it's 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 just it's been greatly amplified and even vindicated by the fact that he um, that Gollum betrayed them in the way that he did, right? Um, his rage at Gollum's treachery has not. Remember, this is we're talking about the guy who briefly considered um, going, you know, dedicating the rest of his life on a quest for vengeance to kill Gollum. Right, and here he is. Right, it's the opportunity. Look, it's just like a bonus. Right, it's like the icing on the cake. You get to the cracks of doom, and you get to to kill Gollum. So, look at that. You didn't have to choose in the end between the quest and your uh, and your 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 vengeance. Um, but uh, but yeah. So he 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 still feels that very strongly. At the same time that he feels the pity, um, and so yeah, Tom. I think we do see a. Um, a, a sort of conflict or confusion, or confusion within Sam, but at the same time, he chooses. Right? He, he not only lets him live, he lets him go. So he 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 could, like he still got his rope. He could still tie him up, but he doesn't do that. He lets him go. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and. Of course, as I've implied in my subtitle for this, uh, the pity of Samwise also uh, shall rule the fates of many, like Bilbo's pity and Frodo's pity have done. Um, it is, of course, because 
Gollum is left alive. The way in which the death of Gollum and the destruction of the ring serves as a culmination of so many different things, right? Um, you know, Gandalf's hints that Gollum still had a role to do, the malice of the ring itself undoing itself and proving its own destruction. Remember the curse that Frodo has called down upon it by the power of the ring? Um, uh, upon Gollum, that is, that if Gollum ever again said, give it to, you know, and, and ever again told um, Frodo to give the ring to him, that he would be, uh, that he would command him to, to, that he would put the ring on and command him to jump off a precipice or into the fire. And he does. Um, yeah. Um, Yeah, Yana says he re-uttered that curse not long ago. You're right. Let's look at that. Then suddenly, as before under the eaves of the Emin Muil, Sam saw these two rivals with other vision. A crouching shape, scarcely more than the shadow of a living thing, a creature now wholly ruined and defeated, yet filled with a hideous lust and rage. And before it stood stern, untouchable now by pity. A figure robed in white, but at its breast it held a wheel of fire. Out of the fire there spoke a commanding voice. Be gone and trouble me no more. If you touch me ever again, you shall be cast yourself into the fire of doom. The crouching shape backed away, terror in its blinking eyes, and yet at the same time insatiable desire. Then the vision passed, and Sam saw Frodo standing, hand on breast, his breath coming in great gasps, and Gollum at his feet, resting on his knees with his wide-splayed hands upon the ground. Sam, again, sees a sort of, has this insight. This is like what we were talking about, we were talking about before with Pippin, where Pippin seemed to have this insight. Remember all, when we were discussing back in the first class about all those seeming passages, right, where it looked to Pippin as if, or it seemed to Pippin as if, um, you know, and, and we were sort of asking, are these things, which are generally visible um, uh, to, uh, to everybody, or um, uh, or or is this just sort of a spiritual insight by Pippin? This, these moments, both the, the moment being described here and the moment being recalled here from the two towers, seems to be clearly a, not a visible moment. Um, so if somebody else were standing there, they would presumably not have seen what Sam saw. Um, but Sam is perceiving, gaining some kind of insight into their real natures, into what's really going on with them. Um, and, by the way, I would also add that we get a similar kind of thing with Sam in the Tower of Kirathungal. Um, that is, Snaga has a similar moment of insight uh, when he turns and runs away from Sam. Um, and uh, I will say, I hate to have my one reference to the movies so far in class today be a, uh, be a, uh, a scathing one, but it will be. Um, what they did with that moment in the film, I hate it. Um, in its way, it rates up as one of my least favorite scenes in all three of the Lord of the Rings films, actually. That scene where um, they the orcs see Sam's shadow and uh, think that he's huge and start to get afraid, and then they see him come around the corner and they laugh and attack him. Um, 
I hate that scene because uh, it's completely missing the point. Now, the, what, what I would say in in you know in in moderation of my annoyance at what they did with that moment in the film is that what is being done in the book is impossible to do well on film. I think it's one of the things which translates awfully, awfully uh, from book to film. If they tried to capture on screen, visually, what Tolkien is describing in the book, it would look so hokey, it would be awful. Um, So I don't think they could do it well. But I certainly don't think that means that they should have turned it on its head. Um, Because what they were seeing was not... What Snaga saw was not a mistake, right? Um, He wasn't... uh, uh, he wasn't making a mistake that that would make us laugh at him. He was perceiving reality, um, a reality which Sam himself could not really perceive, um, and that Sam, in fact, does have the kind of stature that Snaga sort of attributes to him here um, in that moment. Anyway, here Sam is looking at Frodo and seems to be seeing what really is. Um, We get this horrible description of Gollum, scarcely more than a shadow of a living thing, wholly ruined and defeated. Um, But look at Frodo now. Stern, untouchable now by pity, a figure robed in white, but at its breast it held a wheel of fire. Out of the fire there spoke a commanding voice. Be gone and trouble me no more. What do you make of that? What do you make of the voice coming out of the wheel of fire? Gnome asks, is this a ring command? Seems to be. Kay asks, why is he untouchable now by pity? A good question. A good question. Um... Yana says, Frodo is using the ring to order him as he long ago threatened to do. Not exactly, Yana, as he threatened, because he hasn't put it on yet. Um, you know, and that was, that was literally what his threat was. But, but, but in general, I agree with you, Yana. Um, what's actually happening, like what you or I would have seen had we been there, and again, the problem is what a movie camera would have seen if it had been there, is Frodo standing with his hand on his breath his breast, his breath coming in great gasps, right? So there's Frodo, you know, half dead, standing there with his hand on his breast over the ring, you know, breathing hard. That's what was actually happening on a physical level. Um, And yet, he is on the sort of spiritual level here, holding a wheel of fire at his breast and speaking out of the fire with a commanding voice. Um, has he claimed the ring? Not officially, not yet, not for a couple minutes yet. Is he going to claim the ring for himself? Is he invoking the power of the ring? Yes, he does seem to be. Does the ring give him, at the very least, does the ring give authority and potency to the words that he is uttering? Yes. If you touch me ever again, you shall be cast yourself into the fire of doom. Because that's a recapitulation of what he said before, and before he was pointing out, it is the power of the ring that will hold Smeagol to his promise, that will hold Gollum, um, but it but it will 
you know, turn to his undoing, and of course, to its own undoing. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Sarah asks, maybe the ring is beginning to subsume or command Frodo instead of the other way around. Well, Sarah, if we go back to that passage in the Two Towers, I think we've got some reason to think this. When we talked about that passage in the Two Towers class, one of the things that I was suggesting then was that it, it seems like a, an ominous kind of moment. Uh, I mean, it's cool in some ways, you know, the foreshadowing and all that. Um, and Sam seems to approve. It was like, yeah, way to be stern with him finally, you know, Mr. Frodo. That was awesome. Or you tell him, right? Sam seemed to like it. But but at the time we were talking about how it was kind of questionable. It's a little dubious. Um, I there are definitely some ends and means problems here. Um, Frodo saying, you know, in the last need, I would put on the ring, and it, you know, it, it mastered you long ago, so basically I would be your master and you would be my complete slave if I were wearing the ring. And under those circumstances, I would take advantage of my power over you to command you to commit suicide. And you would destroy yourself at my bidding. That's a little uncomfortable, Frodo. Not sure we want to go there, right? Um, can we just build gardens, big gardens instead, maybe? That's not nice. Um, yeah, I mean, it's 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 shaky, Sarah. Even back then, it's shaky. So the fact that he's um, now moving these threats one step further here, again, Sarah, I think it, it does invite us to see how, again, another ring has been gnawing away at Frodo's will. And Frodo's will is almost gone. Frodo is going to be not in exactly the same way, not in such a dramatic, to such a dramatic extent, but that horrible description. Um, a creature now wholly ruined and defeated. At least, <clears throat> at least a shadow of that description could be given to Frodo. At the cracks of doom. He's defeated. His, he can't hold out anymore. Um, he's not capable of doing it. It has surpassed his strength. Um, he's held out and held out and can't do it anymore. Um, but back to the untouchable by pity. Um, yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry. Alyssa makes a great point. Alyssa is uh, reminding us of that moment at um, at the ford of Bruinen uh, when the ringwraiths are chasing him. And Frodo tries to command them. Right? Go back. Go back to the land of Mordor and trouble me no more. But he doesn't have the power of Bombadil. Right? He can't <clears throat> make them obey just by saying it. He can't banish them. Uh, banish the darkness in the same way that Tom Bombadil banished the Barrow White. It's not going to happen for Frodo. Alyssa points out that Frodo has the power to make that kind of a band now. Y- you know, uh, yeah, yeah. He, I mean, he can... Uh, notice, remember in the passage before when Sam was uh, showing pity to Gollum, though, as Tom was pointing out, he was really conflicted and still obviously angry at Gollum at the same time. Um, um, Sam says you know, in that moment, oh, curse you, you stinking thing. Well, okay, yeah. When Frodo curses him, that curse 
bites. That curse has potency. That curse works. Um, Frodo has the power now to be able to 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 bring that kind of curse home. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, Um, as usual, it's now been fully two hours. I should let you guys go. Um, and I'm making my should I bring up another subject or should I just put it off until next time face. Um, I basically what I'm what I'm debating is whether to talk more about Frodo and Frodo's failure. Because um, I I think we could save that. Um, ah, Yana, you're right. We started late. And anyway, you're still up. If you're still up, I can make it for a little bit, Yana. Um, uh, though I don't know, has, uh, has the, uh, has the, has the rooster crowed yet, wrecking nothing of, 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 of wizardry or war, uh, over there, <laughs> over there? Um, not yet? Okay. Okay. Um, still my hour then. Um, well, I'm not going to be able to finish the topic, but just a couple things I want to say about it. Um, we get the quest to Mount Doom, that is these final stages, we get these from Sam's perspective, in part because there's no way that any kind of contiguous narrative could be developed, told from Frodo's point of view. The glimpses that we get into what's going on in Frodo's mind and in Frodo's experience um, can only be conveyed, I think, indirectly by showing us the struggles of Sam. And I think this is true both of the negative things he experiences and of the positive resolutions that he has. That is, um, one of the things that I think is really powerful this is something I was thinking about uh, more this, on this reading through. All of the emphasis on thirst. And I, I, I begin to see that working... On, you know, again, it's not only literally true, and and um, you know one of the primary things that Sam suffers from, but um, um, both of them, but Sam even more because he keeps giving Frodo all the water. Um, but the way in which that thirst, I think, Sam's suffering helps us to understand Frodo's suffering. Sam himself sees his own sufferings as only a fraction of what Frodo's are, because he's not, he, Sam, is not dealing with the burden of the ring in addition to all of these other things. Um, and that, uh, um, so again, I come, I, I come back to the, the emphasis on thirst as a way in which I, I believe Tolkien is trying to give us some kind of a shadow, some kind of a hint at, Fro- at Frodo's experience. The suffering involved, the pain, the torment involved in enduring the ring and forswearing it um, is, you know, n- not just forswearing it once like Sam forswore it, you know, it, it, on that occasion that we recall uh, from the beginning of class, but that continual minute by minute, day by day, um, I'm not going to take the ring. I'm not going to take the ring. Um, that I can begin to see the, the the thirst is almost like a metaphor for that, for his desire um, 
and you know but with frodo it's different <clears throat> it's like enduring that kind of thirst while holding a container of water right it's right there you could drink uh, you know, he has this desire, this aching, burning desire for the ring that he must continually resist. It's not just, can you go on without it? Um, that's what Gollum is experiencing, right? Gollum has this insatiable desire for the ring, and he cannot satisfy that desire. It's outside of his power. Frodo is in an even harder situation, right? It is in his power, um, but he has to resist. Um, so I think that that's um, again, ways in which our description, the, the description of what's going on with Sam helps us, at least by sort of metaphor, by, by, uh, by, by analogy, begin to, to try to imagine um, what Frodo was experiencing. But also, even the, the what we've seen Sam going through as far as, uh, you know, hope and hopelessness and, and uh, you know, despair and perseverance and defiance and all those things um, you know that we can see we can know we can believe that frodo is is going through similar things i I, I come back to one um, passage that we get from frodo um, where he asks Sam to hold his hands um, he can't say i can't i can't I can't stop my hands anymore um, he knows that his will lacks the power to keep his hand from, but his will is still locked against it. So I can't stop my hand, but I want you to stop my hand. Right? Um, shows how weak the working of his will has become, and yet how strong is still the focus of his will. Um, he's sliding backwards, but he's still facing in the right way. You know, darn it. Um, so, uh, anyway, it's, uh, you know, again, we get these glimpses, though surely a description of what the journey would have been from Frodo's perspective would be absolutely unendurable, um, and unreadable. Um, we'll talk about Frodo a little bit more, um, but I should let you guys go. Um, we will, having gotten to the end of the quest we're now halfway through the class <laughs> we've done now four classes out of the eight uh, I'm planning on the return of the king um, and we've just gotten to the conclusion right um, that's that's the way this story works um, which is of course always why you know when um, when the return of the king film came out uh, and of course, you probably remember everybody was always was complaining about or laughing at the endings of the film. You know how it kept ending and ending, and you know every time they thought like, "Oh, the, you know, the credits going to roll now." The credits didn't roll now. Of course, you know those of us who knew the book never suspected the credits were going to roll, like when Frodo woke up from from you know uh, at the field of Cormallon. Not that the field of Cormallon happened in the film exactly, but you know what I mean. Um, but uh, anyhow. You know, I, I knew what the ending was. I was waiting for "Well, I'm back," and by golly, I got it. Um, however, again, that it's not just um, it's it's not just that uh, you know we keep getting these these. But again, but that 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 is in fact the film 
was being true to the shape of the book in that way. We do get these successions of 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 endings and farewells that go along the way as it keeps sort of moving. But well, not, I'm not moving inward, moving outward, really. Um, you know, kind of closing parentheses. Uh, you know, as we go towards the finish of the sentence. Um, so it is fitting, and it's one of the things I want us to be thinking about actually as we get through. We have two more class sessions on book six itself, um, and then we will we'll be looking at the appendices after that. But in, in our next two classes, as we look at the last chapters of book six, my question is, why? What is the purpose for giving us so much denouement? Why doesn't this book end sooner after the climax? Um, what is the function of all of this wind-down time that we're going to get, and we're going to get many chapters of, you know, what could be dismissed as denouement. Um, so, uh, anyway, uh, that's something that I definitely want to be thinking about as we move towards the end of the book. But thanks, everybody, for joining me tonight. Thanks for your wonderful questions and observations. Uh, I really appreciate that, as always, and I look forward to talking to you guys again next week. Uh, we're going to be on Thursday again next week, uh, and we're going to be back in a in a in a in a in a, in a Europe friendly hour again. So we're going to be doing the uh, the four o'clock p.m. Eastern time time next Thursday. Uh, so I will see you guys then. Bye.